Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, media critic Margaret Sullivan made a plea to journalists to turn off their fascination with Donald Trump when he leaves office. Acknowledging, as few do, that elite media profited off a monster they helped create, Sullivan asked outlets to just say no to setting up a Mar-a-Lago bureau or entire beats dedicated to what Trump and his family are up to. Quote, and for God's sake, stop writing about his unhinged tweets. Close quote. While we await the day that particular face and voice are no longer at the top of every newscast, it ain't over till it's over. And harms Trump does as a lame duck are harms nonetheless. Public Citizen is keeping an eye on these last-minute maneuvers. We'll hear from the group's executive vice president, Lisa Gilbert. Also on the show, hang on to your hats. Research says cutting super-rich people's taxes doesn't really help middle- or lower-income people, but does make rich people richer. If your hat's unmoved, it might be because you remember the architect of so-called trickle-down theory, Ronald Reagan's budget director David Stockman, admitting as much to journalist Bill Greider, rather famously, one would have thought, 40 years ago. Dean Baker from the Center for Economic and Policy Research joins us to explain why some ghosts of economic theories past don't seem to go away. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look at some recent press. The year's end often drives news media to look at trends. We wonder if they'll examine some of their own. In that world, volumes would be dedicated to false balance the trope that keeps on giving. From claims of voter fraud, presented as kinda sorta the same as evidence of voter suppression, to tossed-off headlines about how both QAnon and Black Lives Matter are now represented in Congress, corporate media kept on telling us that one thing was just like the other, even when it really was not. When reporters write the books... They will have spent the last four years denouncing anti-democracy in no uncertain terms. In real time, they're writing headlines like the Washington Post's, quote, Biden and Trump vie to project authority, making for a tense transition, close quote. Second stimulus checks may be on the way, read a recent CNBC headline. Here's what advisors say you should do with the money. Assuming anyone was waiting on CNBC to see what to do with maybe $600, the network suggests, quote, start by whittling down high-interest debt and bulking up your emergency and retirement savings, close quote. $600, quote, might not sound like much, but can have lasting effects if used wisely, advisors say, close quote. True, it doesn't sound like much. It sounds, in fact, like less than 1% of the median household income. And if you're one of the 20 million renters in the U.S. who owe between twelve dollars and $1,700 in back rent, according to the National Council of State Housing Agencies, it sounds like even less. CNBC's advice is so out of touch it's almost funny until you remember this is the perspective the outlet reports from every day. And listeners may know, Time magazine featured Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as their 2020 People of the Year. 
There's nothing scientific about that contest, of course. Time admits it's ultimately their call. Still, it seems worth noting that Reader's top pick was essential workers. The frontline, hospital, grocery, factory, and field workers who put their lives on the line to allow others to carry on in a time of hardship and uncertainty. Also seen by Time readers as significant, life-changing actors of 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement that kept this country's unfinished business of white supremacy front and center with a series of peaceful protests. Black Lives Matter pulled fourth with Time readers to Joe Biden's fifth. But Biden ended up on the cover. And that, somehow, shows both what's still wrong with corporate media in 2020 and maybe how we're getting better at talking around them. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Whatever he or his minions fantasize, Donald Trump will no longer be president on January 20th. Whether the Trump administration tested U.S. institutions and aspects of governance or revealed existing weaknesses, it's clear that the tsunami of corruption and callousness has left wreckage. As eager as we may be now to look ahead or just away, the truth is Trump as a lame duck continues to wreak important havoc. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the zealous return to federal executions, unheard of for decades, but many other actions are less visible. Public Citizen is keeping their eyes on the administration's last-minute maneuvers. They have a new web tool to track them. We're joined now by Lisa Gilbert, Public Citizen's executive vice president and also founder of the Not Above the Law Coalition. She joins us by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Lisa Gilbert. Thanks so much for having me. Well, some of it, as I say, we can see. The attempt to hobble the transition, for instance, initially barring staff from having any contact with Biden's incoming team, that's the type of thing that is, yes, graceless and norm-breaking, but also materially harmful. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of what Public Citizen's new web tool calls Trump's lame duck tantrum. That's right. So, you know, we are looking across the board at the ways that we expect Trump to do dirty deals or try to pardon cronies or roll back regulations that are critical to public health and safety in these last critical weeks. But we wanted this tool to come into effect at a moment where we think it's critical that we not lose the thread of what Trump is able to do in this moment and, and you know, pay deep attention to it in the hopes that we can either stop what he's doing or at least alert the Biden administration of these last minute actions so they can roll them back in turn. Well, that Trump... Just to take one, that Trump was going to roll back regulations on corporations was clear. I spoke with Amit Narang from Public Citizen early in the administration when Trump issued that goofy executive order that for any new rule, federal agencies had to repeal two existing rules. You know, it's just the kind of ham-fisted. I thought Public Citizen maybe even brought a suit around that. Um, but, but that order fairly represents the corporate capture of the regulatory process under Trump, would you say? Absolutely. I mean, that order was so inane. The idea that you would promulgate one safety rule and and arbitrarily remove two others that are not connected to it in any way off the books, you know, it just shows such a lack of regard for human life and, and for health and safety and 
sort of a, a devotion to the idea that regulations are somehow by their very nature bad or red tape or harmful. And we know that the opposite is true. All they are is the the end stage of a law, uh, which uh, when we actually get to protect people. Right, right. Well, so what are some of the regulations in, in that sphere? What are the some of the things that Trump is up to now that you think it's worth keeping an eye on? Well, since we are at the end of an administration, you know, we do usually see presidents try to accomplish their goals in a flurry of activity. And, and since one of Trump's goals is to roll back health, safety, environmental and financial regulations, we are certainly seeing a flurry of those kinds of last minute activities. So, you know, in our tracker, we take a look at, at some of the rules that have been rolled back since November 3rd, since the beginning of the lame duck. So, you know, there are environmental rules like approving coal ash in the environment. The EPA finalized a rule that outlines a process for approving existing online coal ash pits. They've, for example, removed the protected status of the gray wolf or allowing air polluters to avoid oversight. The EPA recently changed its interpretation of the Clean Air Act to benefit polluters. You know, it's just kind of all of the same cloth, this sort of idea that we better rush these rules out the door to hurt our environment. That's not the only area, but just a, a really tangible one that people clearly understand. Yeah. Public protections are needed, and the Trump administration is, is walking us in the wrong direction. Well, there's a section in this web tool, in this collection of, it's a live database that you, people can add to it. There's a section called Dirty Dealing. And, you know, we think of favor trading and it's crummy, you know, but as you're saying on environmental things, it's not just somebody getting richer. It's it's actual material harm that might not be as easy to undo as, as we think, you know. So some of the deals that Trump has made have had impacts that are beyond just kind of, you know, thinking that's not how business should be done. That's completely right. So, you know, we look at a couple of different categories of so-called dirty dealing, and of course there are are many that we could have highlighted, but we we looked in part at where his legal defense donations have been going. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, he's raised hundreds of millions of dollars from his supporters for legal defense in his ill, uh, soft quest to overturn the election results. But there's a real question as to where that money is going to go. You know, is it intended to further either Trump or his family or his cronies' political ambitions? Is it going to cover his campaign debts? I mean, we really don't know. And it is very unsavory to see him raising money for something we know is a fool's errand, but then using it for political ambitions. So, you know, we highlight that. We look at how he's thinking about rewarding allies, you know, as another sort of dirty deal. You know, we think that it's a little bit scary to think about how people are, are burrowing into the administration at this moment. He's sort of rushing through controversial hirings, filling commissions, changing the structure of the federal government to make it easier to move political appointees to become long-term career appointees, you know, all with this idea of you know, undercutting the Biden administration and leaving his, his loyalists behind him. We talk about punishing enemies as well in the sort of dirty dealing space. So, you know, I think there's There are numerous categories. Unfortunately, he is the king of dirty deals, but this tracker tries to take a slice of of how he's been spending his time on this front during the lame duck. If I could just ask you a kind of process question, because I'm from the D.C. area and my parents worked for the federal government, and I remember it's almost a joke, you know, the appointees come in and then they go, you know, and the career civil servants are like, yeah, here we still are doing the work. You know, so when you say burrowing Trump folks within agencies. Can you explain that a little bit? He's actually changing rules to allow folks who are appointees to become career? 
Yes. So he passed an executive order, which we are also tracking, his lame duck executive orders, to create a new type of federal employee, a Schedule F federal employee. It has two problems. These federal employees are easier to fire and, and let go. So if he turns career employees into Schedule F, it means that they have less protection. So we're worried about that. But also, there is flexibility to move people in and out between political and career within this new Schedule F determination. And so he has begun to do that, moving a set of politicals into these career posts. So that means they will stay. And it is definitely, as you say, it's unusual. Politicals tend to come and go with the new administration. Absolutely. uh, And a change of of political direction. And and that might not happen as much as as it had in in other transitions. I find that actually deeply concerning. You know, all of this is certainly, but that's a real structural change. That I think, you know, maybe if you're not familiar with the the culture or just the way things work in D.C. might not stand out to you, but it, it certainly is dramatic. Well, we've mentioned that this is a, a database, a web tool. I think there's a lot of information that reporters would find useful for starting stories, but also that just the general public might want to keep up on. How are you hoping that this tool will be used? Both of those ways. <laughs> so, you know, our hope is that in this moment where some of these actions by President Trump are are not being taken notice of by reporters, by the general public, that they will find this tool and and use it and also help us by flagging things they're seeing so we can add it to the database. It's pretty egregious the level of activity that the Trump administration is undertaking in this moment, and we don't want to miss anything. So I think the hope is that as Trump does things like move to politicize the civil service under the noses of all of us, tools like this will help us stay on top of it and push back uh, in the media. We've been speaking with Lisa Gilbert, Executive Vice President of Public Citizen. Find their work online at citizen.org. Lisa Gilbert, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. A recent rash of headlines announced, a la CBS News, 50 years of tax cuts for the rich failed to trickle down, economic study says. There is, in fact, a new paper from folks from the London School of Economics and King's College showing that countries that cut taxes for the rich did not show notable increases in jobs or growth. What they showed was increases in the wealth of the wealthy. Advocates of greater economic equality are meant to use such moments to advance the effort. But this case raises the question, just how much are we supposed to pretend we didn't already know? What does this faux naivete get us exactly? It's doubtful that this story about how trickle-down doesn't work for its stated aims will be the last time we see the notion seriously entertained or assumed So maybe what we need is a conversation about why it's been entertained for so long. We're joined now by Dean Baker, co-founder and a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, where he writes the blog Beat the Press. He joins us by phone from Utah. Welcome back to Counterspin, Dean Baker. Thanks a lot for having me on. Well, research doesn't have to be groundbreaking to be meaningful, certainly. It's not as though you only need one study on any proposition. And of course, I intend no disrespect to the researchers behind this study. I wonder if you, as an economist, would situate these findings, you know, that tax cuts on the wealthy don't trickle down in ways benefiting the working or middle class, situate these findings in the body of 
economic understanding. How, how new is this? Well, I have to say it's not particularly new at all, because the, the, the central issue here is how much can we expect to boost investment, because that is the story. I mean, people often wave their hands a lot and say this and that, but the story, if I want to say that cutting taxes on the rich will boost economic growth, will help everyone, it really is through investment. And this is a very heavily researched topic at this point, and there's very, very little evidence that you could have any substantial, I'm not going to say zero, but any substantial increase in investment with lower tax rates. All the evidence is just that companies are not very responsive to tax rates. Not to say that the companies involved or their, their rich shareholders don't want more money. Of course they do. But are they going to invest a lot because they get a lower tax rate? And all the evidence says no. So one more study in effect giving us the same result well that's good but it's not at all news well folks are tracing the trickle down idea uh to to Ronald Reagan and i mean didn't didn't Ronald Reagan's own budget director David Stockman kind of famously um you know renounce or at least qualify his own you know um promotion of this idea yeah, uh, David Stockman backed away from that. And, uh, he had been budget director, and they put down what he acknowledged were just crazy numbers so that they could say, oh, we're going to cut taxes, but we'll still end up with more money because we'll have so much additional growth. And he acknowledged they put down bogus numbers. They had no basis for them, in other words. Um, so this is back in 82, 83. I forget when he owned up to it, but in any case, it was quite some time ago. And we continue to have this, of course, most recently with the Trump tax cut back in 2017. They were saying that, oh, we're going to generate so much revenue that it actually ends up costing us nothing. Well, so much additional growth that it will cost us nothing. And and quite clear, I mean, even pre-pandemic, that was not happening. There was no noticeable uptick in growth. There was a little bit in 2018 as people spent the tax cut, not that they invested it because you couldn't find any increase in investment, but they did spend it. and that gave some very modest boost to growth, but we lost that by 219. So we hear this again and again and again. I'm sure we'll keep hearing it. Yeah. Well, what confuses and galls, you know, on one level is that media report as though there is kind of a neutral body of economic knowledge floating out there somewhere and informing our economic policy, when we understand that it's contested terrain, not because people have such wildly different understandings of how things work, but because they have different goals of how they want things to work. And media suck the the dynamism, the debate out of economics and make it sound like it's the weather. Yeah, it is really annoying because they treat it like, oh, these are two competing arguments. And what they'll often say, and this is just bad reporting, they'll often say Republicans believe. In other words, they actually, that Trump wanted to have this tax cut because he thought it would lead to huge economic growth. Now, I have no idea what's in Trump's head, and I'd probably rather not think about that. But the point is, they're the ones who are attributing beliefs. And they're just totally irresponsible. They say fine. They say things. They say all sorts of things that aren't true. But don't tell us that they believe it, because that gives it a level of credibility, which it certainly doesn't deserve. And again, I have no idea what they believe. They may well believe it. I don't know. But the fact is, when a reporter says that a politician believes X, they're making it up because they don't know what the politician believes. Yeah. And, you know, as a reporter, when a source lies to you, you're meant to look askance at them the next time. When a theory coming from a sector or from a think tank or group of them turns out to be disproved, you know, 
shouldn't it affect your reliance on those theories from that sector going forward? And yet I have to wonder what, if any, would be the lasting impact of this little intervention. You know, Bloomberg, in writing it up, says, (laughs) you know, essentially says, People are saying you can't possibly tax the wealthy without hurting the economy. Well, this report shows that to be untrue. And Bloomberg says that that could add to the case for the wealthy to bear more of the cost of the coronavirus and the pandemic in that case. In other words, this information that seems to get right to the root of a particular argument well, maybe it could add something to the way we think about thinking about that uh, in the future. Yeah, I think there's some hope. I don't want to be too much of an optimist, but (laughs) there's some hope that reporters will be a little, what I will say, balanced when they report on this issue and have their reporting reflect the actual evidence. And again, I have no problem with them saying that McConnell or whatever conservative, and there could well be some Democrats in that boat, say, oh, we can't raise taxes because they'll hurt the economy. You can't raise taxes on the rich. Um, That's fine. But just don't, don't report that as saying they believe that. And also point out, there's a vast amount of evidence at this point showing that that's not true. Just as if they're going to, and they've been reasonably good on this, when they report Trump saying that he won the election, generally the news stories will point out there's actually no evidence to support that. Yeah, to me, it sort of feels like when you're talking about, um, you know, something like inequality and you have folks saying, well, you know, we we couldn't help it possibly by by taking more from the rich, you know, and elite media sort of pretend to scratch their heads over that. To me, that is just salting the wound, you know, um, of of things that we know we could do if our goal really was to alleviate poverty or to reduce inequality, to sort of present it as this denatured battle of ideologies, I think is is materially harmful. Yeah, Yeah, and I'll even go a step further because a lot of my writing has been to point out that our policies have actually been to create inequality. And in other words, we structured the market in ways that lead to inequality. And that view is almost completely absent from reporting. I mean, like literally does not exist. So the argument is how much do we want policy, presumably tax and transfer policy, to counter the inequality created by the market? But you almost never see the argument, which, again, I I make much of my writing, and I'm not the only one who makes it, that we structured the market to create inequality and we could structure the market differently. So it's not a question of interfering with the market. It's a question of how we structure it. There is no way not to interfere with the market. You know, I was just reminded just now of another piece of research from the Center for Public Integrity that talked about how companies that got some nearly $2 billion in aid to save jobs then turned around and laid off nearly 100,000 workers anyway. But when we come around again to the question of whether we should give companies aid we're going to be babies newborn again, and, you know, um, and maybe this will work, or, you know, we're going to be ready to be surprised again. And to say you suspect bad faith, it kind of takes you outside of the grown-up people economic debate, in a way. Yeah, and what's funny is it is asymmetric, so that no one doubts when a labor union, a union president, a spokesperson gets out there and says, oh, we want X. Well, everyone understands that they're saying we want X is because they're trying to help their members. If it's the auto workers, it's the steel workers. They understand. I mean, not a surprise. But when a corporation goes, oh, we want X and it's going to be good for the economy, 
somehow the claim it's going to be good for the economy is treated seriously, and that's their real motivation. I mean, it could incidentally be good for the economy, but when the president of ExxonMobil says, oh, we have to help out the oil industry, well, the president is saying that because that president wants to increase ExxonMobil's profits. And if that ends up being good for the economy, well, that's incidental. That's not why the president of ExxonMobil is saying it. Well, finally, I know you wrote recently about the opportunity lost by the United States' choice not to cooperate internationally on a vaccine or treatments for the coronavirus. Folks are going to look back on what happened, but you're saying it's important to see what were decisions, what were choices. The same might be said, mightn't it, for this country's handling of the inevitable economic fallout from COVID-19. It isn't hard to imagine different choices that could have been made in that regard as well. It's, it's not outlandish to think that we could have acted differently and be in a different situation economically now. Yeah, it, it really is painful for me to see. Well, it's painful for me to see it. It's more painful for the people experiencing it. But the, the hardship that people have suffered through this pandemic has been largely by choice. Now, obviously, we couldn't keep everyone from getting the disease, couldn't keep everyone from dying. We could have done much better in that respect. But in terms of the economic hardship, okay, closing down restaurants, that's kind of common sense. That's a way you keep it from spreading. But the fact that the workers had to suffer, the fact that small business owners had to, in many cases, lose their business that they'd built up for years, that was an economic choice. And we did a reasonably good job in the first three months with the CARES Act of addressing that, that we did have generous unemployment benefits. We had the Paycheck Protection Program, which far from perfect, but it basically did what you wanted something like that to do. And we could have expanded those, continued those. Instead, those were allowed to end. And now we finally have come through with some additional aid, grossly inadequate. But it does somewhat address the problem. But nonetheless, we have millions of people out of work. Many of them have been out of work since back in March the shutdowns began. And many will likely be out of work for several months more, even in a best-case scenario. And we know from a lot of research, long-term unemployment, just as we know that trickle-down, giving money to the rich doesn't help. We know long-term unemployment hurts. A lot of the people that are unemployed six, eight, ten months, they may never work again. Those that have families, uh, it often is associated with divorce. Kids have problems in school, so that could affect them through their lifetime. So that aspect of the pandemic was a preventable disaster that we chose not to prevent. We've been speaking with Dean Baker of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. You can find their work, including Dean's Beat the Press commentary, online at CEPR.net. Dean Baker, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks a lot for having me on, and happy holidays. And that's Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.